Hey folks, welcome to part three of my review of Toys in the Attic by Aerosmith with my good friend John Matola. I uh, just want to thank John again for coming on the show and doing this one. You know, it was kind of a marathon podcast, so I broke it into multiple episodes. This is the third and final part. And we really dig into this album and into some really good stuff. It, there's so many great songs on this album. I honestly feel that there isn't a single filler track or you know track that I wouldn't want to listen to. Every one of them is just a home run for me. And I feel like that on a lot of the albums that came out around this generation where bands didn't write, you know, they just didn't seem to write albums or songs that didn't connect with me in one way or another. And part of that might have been my youth or inexperience with being able to you know, detect the value of a song, but, you know, really the value of a song is what it means to you. And so on this album, especially, I don't feel like there's a single filler track. John seemed to enjoy every song in this album, and we're going to dig into it once again. Thank you, John. You guys check him out at the Deep Purple Podcast. Links are in the show notes. Enjoy our finale of our three-part investigation into the album Toys in the Attic by Aerosmith. So here's a little bit of Round and Round. Another very simple but fantastically solid riff. Yeah, this is um, this is absolutely one of my favorite songs on the album because it is the heaviest. Like mm. this is this is one where when I heard it, I was like, "Wow!" I did not know that Aerosmith was this fucking heavy. Yeah, I mean that that riff right there is is like sounds like something that could have been like you know off of like uh like rainbow rising or something you know what i mean yeah like um because i mean you know you got like you got um you got the guys playing like the uh, the octave you know riff which is what richie did all the time mm -hmm. you know but i mean um it was just this really like slow like really heavy steven tyler's just like wailing away back there and i mean you know they have a lot of like um you know effects going into it like toward the end of the um uh, toward the end of the song, like the round and round, and they have the mm -hmm. vocals kind of like going like, you know, in both uh, both channels and stuff. Yeah. And um, if I can remember right, this was a this was a Brad Whitford guitar solo. Oh, OK. Specifically, because I remember like that uh, one of those things reading that because, you know, occasionally like here and there, you'd be like, oh, yeah, and Brad had this solo and you're just like, whoa. Um, which I mean, I feel like he took some of those like lesser known songs or like deep cut uh, solos like cause mm -hmm. some of the heavier songs um uh there was another one on the the first album um one way street where he did i think the the first part of the 
the extended guitar jam. And I was always like, wow, that was like one of my favorites. And I mean, I like the Joe Perry one too, but I mean, his, his solo and that was awesome too. So, I mean, he's definitely one of the lesser known, you know, guys in there to like, uh, you know, I guess the, the, um, the casual Aerosmith fan that, you know, you shouldn't sleep on because, you know, he's like definitely, um, you know, a great player, but I mean, just, um, uh, but overall, like this song, like is is definitely one of my favorites of theirs because I don't I don't know if they even like replicated anything quite like this ever again. Not that um, I've heard. It, it's really dark, and I mean, it, it could almost yeah. go on, say, an album like Born Again, um, if it was recorded in those sessions with that sound, because it really has that same darkness of like Zero the Hero to me. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, it's it's yeah, it's lying in that same that same place it's got that kind of same tempo mm-hmm. you know because you have the dun 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 and the dun 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 you know mm-hmm. yeah you can kind of hear it a little bit yeah but um but yeah it's like you know that this is definitely like you know it, like it could be their entry into like the you know where the godfathers of heavy metal <laughs> this this no. is their turning point to the macabre like every metal band has to do at some point you know, what's interesting to me is how many effects we hear on Steven Tyler's voice on this album. And normally I would say you don't need to affect a guy like this. He sounds great as he is. You don't really need to push that envelope. But honestly, I'm glad they did. I think it really enhances the song. It gives you a little bit yeah. more flavor to work mm-hmm. with on the album. And I love his uh, his Death Alley Driver opening, you know, with his voice. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just think from, from the beginning, the song just, it just gives you a little drop of taste and then it kicks right in with, with the, the drums just piling up, banging on the floor, Tom. At first, you think it's going to be gentle. That first run on the floor, Tom, is fairly gentle. Then he starts hitting it really hard all the way up until the riff starts, which I really like. Um, I like the build in it. Uh, I think that the, the feeling of the vocals is really intense. You know, yes. and normally I would be so annoyed with a song where they take a have a title like round and round. And at some point they have to go round and round and round and round in the song like Van Halen does. It would just bug the piss out of me. But for some reason in this song, I love it. It, it just works. It's almost zombie like at the mm. end. They're so monotone and so disconnected from the song that it just brings out a whole new level of that darkness that I feel in the guitars. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's a, you know, I think that's a credit to like, um, you know, again, the, um, the, uh, the producer, you know, just having a great uh, producer behind them to, um, to, to, you know, probably suggest like, um, I mean, having like, um, I mean, I don't think his, like, um, I would say probably the, the song that had the most dry vocals on it would be like, say big 10 inch. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Which I mean, you know, probably had like a little reverb on it, but it's like having a drier vocal on that on a song like this wouldn't have worked. You needed to have that kind of like, you know, that like you said, that added to the real like, you know, dark feel Mm -hmm. of it to go along with like the riff and the song. Like, I mean, that's, you know, you could play this live and, you know, be like, okay, Um, but to get that, you know, feeling to kind of like convey like, you know, this is the, the vibe of the song. You need to have those effects on it. Yeah. Um, and, and they weren't overtaking it either. You know, it's not like that's all you could hear. Like, uh, like you said, it really enhanced things and it made it like, um, like I think really memorable. And you know what, what it just reminded me of, um, because he's singing with so much power during this section, you really, you really feel like he's singing from his gut 
And it reminds me of Nervous by Gillen, the way that he was oh, really okay, yeah. pushing that that level of how hard he could hit his voice. I really feel like Steven Tyler's doing that here. He's finding that element of here's here's the bottom of what I can push, and I'm going to really make this as powerful as possible. He's not singing from his lungs. He's singing from everything he can find beneath and pushing it up through the top. And I, I love that. And, and that works with the effect. It works with that that distortion in the guitar. It just makes the song just so much heavier to to do it that way. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where the guys uh, where the guys got this from, but it was like, you know, one of the one of the best surprises of their catalog. Like I said, I remember the first time hearing this and just being like, I never knew that they, they did a song this heavy because this yeah. is heavy. If there was one Aerosmith song, I could say I would really love to have been a fly on the wall to see how this all came together. It would be this yeah. song. Very easily mm-hmm. it would be this song. Um, our last song, however, is going to... Oh, oh, you know what else I wanted to mention was at the end when they're repeating that round and round and round part, um, there is a, a, a guitar, distorted guitar, that's raising in pitch every mm-hmm. pass. And I, I like that because it stays in tune, but it adds that dramatic element to yeah. something i mean you could just let me ride out with that round and round and fade it and i would have been okay but then they've got to find that one more piece of magic to add to it and it's just those simple notes dun, 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 just going up in pitch i love mm-hmm. it i think that was a brilliant touch yeah for sure so our last song uh, is is really, to me, a great way to end this album. It really feels to me like if this album was, say, a Broadway show, this would be the perfect closer, the way that it ends. I think it's absolutely fantastic. It feels like a reprise, even though it's not, at least to me. Uh, hmm. But most of the time, I don't know what I'm talking about. So maybe it doesn't. Um, this is called You See Me Crying. What do you think of this one you know i really i really love this song like um i think that you kind of put it into words like the way that i always felt about it is is that it, it feels like a reprise mm-hmm. of of something even though it's not uh like um but i think like you know i guess to be more um you know to get a little like pinpointed a little more this is like it feels like a um um that makes it feel like a good finale for the album like this is the like you know well see you later goodbye like i hope you enjoyed the show type of thing but like the emotional ballad version of it which after all of that you know great rock music and then you have this really heavy song and then you get to this song like there's that usually you're just like oh i had to end on the 
on like a, a low note or something, but it really wasn't because I mean, the song is still really dynamic because you got the piano, you got the orchestra. They probably rented the orchestra and they're just like, all right, let's throw them in another song. Right. <laughs> yeah. we, we already paid for them. So mm-hmm. let's, uh, no, but I mean, that works really well in there because, you know, uh, you know, it's Steven Tyler showing off his, uh, piano chops. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, really emotional vocal. The first thing that I, thought of when i heard this is just like everybody thinks like oh there was the there was ballad sellout band in the 90s like they were doing ballads you know on their second album oh yeah you know? right and i mean it's like if you had updated this and recorded it like you know 20 or 30 years later it probably would have sounded the same as all those other songs you know mm-hmm. um so i mean it was something that i always think they're really good at and um you know i think it was a great way to to end the album because it was kind of like a um um what is that um like the sound of music where they're like so long farewell oh yeah yeah <laughs> that mm-hmm. type of thing right you know it makes me think of that and mm-hmm. it's like it's a weird thing to think that it's like appropriate for this kind of album because you've had like so many like you know kind of like really heavy and swinging and you know rocking moments and everything and then you figure like oh you know a real way to go out would be to like you know blast them with another heavy tune but i think this works really well uh, the one thing that I'm kind of always been on the fence about, like has been impressive, but also kind of annoying is the way that like he does, like he really, he screeches out those vocals at the end. Yeah. The last verse. Yeah. Which I was just like, all right, like this is like really extra, even for Stephen. Tyler. <laughs> like it was just like, he sang like the whole last verse in that like really high pitched, like screechy voice mm-hmm. that he does and i was like and i don't think i've ever heard him do that any other time than that but i'm like i wonder whose idea that was yeah i i have always felt like i love the strings during the third verse i think they enhance the song so much but oh, yeah. I, I i've always thought that that kind of felt a little bit awkward if he'd have used more like uh, his voice on what it takes where he was wasn't singing high but still had that emotion and power to it um he could have put in a little vibrato i think it would have sounded just fine this kind of feels like you're trying to hit an emotion that I'm not feeling from you. Mm-hmm. Like you're you're at the end of your rope kind of emotion, but I don't feel that you're at the end of your rope. I think you're trying to tell me that you're end of the rope instead of showing me. I, I, okay, I guess yeah. that's what I get out of it. But I do think that the um, the ending of the song is a perfect album ending, the way it just kind of slows down and everything kind of fades out with the piano notes. It really, I think, also adds to that uh, show finale sort of feel it, it you get yeah. you you don't feel like there's a song coming after this when you feel like this is the end of the album just right. by the way it plays out um i do love the clarinets that are in the in the the beginning the opening of the song i think they add a lot to that to the piano um i just think it's a very beautiful song and, and other than that one hang up that you have in the third verse i agree that's that's the one thing i've always been like i don't i don't agree with that choice but yeah, the rest I mean, of the song, even I that yeah. yeah, I mean, even that is, is like, it's not enough to make me be like, eh. but, um, yeah. you know, it's one of those things where you're kind of like, eh, they could have probably done that differently. But I, I think you would agree. It's like, it's one of these songs where, uh, or that when the album ends, then you're just like, whoa, what a ride. And then you want to mm-hmm. flip it over and just listen to the whole thing again. Exactly, exactly that. And and I love when the bass comes in to follow that little lick uh, with the piano, because yeah. it just all of a sudden, I mean, it's like this nice, gentle intro. And then when the bass kicks in, even though the guitars are kicking in, it's really that bass that you feel that's making that just come alive and turning it from a two-dimensional picture into a three-dimensional picture. I just I just mm-hmm. love that little run. And it's such a simple scale transition. 
But just the sound of that bass, the depth of it right there is just so powerful to me. Mm, absolutely. I yeah. think, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I don't think there's a there's a clunker on this whole album. Agree. I, I absolutely, there's not one song where I'm like, yeah, skip it. You know, when I put this album on, I listen to the album. Yeah. And I mean, I think like, did I have any criticisms except for like this last song like even like a small one i can't even remember saying anything like oh i would have done this different or no i would have left that out like i don't even think i had anything bad to say so. no not at all i mean it's it's a very solid album from the writing to the performances to the production i mean those are those are the three main check boxes and i think every song checks all three yeah um actually now that i think of it this was the was this the this was the third album i think was it I'm not sure because again, I really don't know their history that well. Yeah, because uh, they had the first album, and then uh, what was the second? Because um, I, I, I feel like I said this was their second album, and I now did, that yeah. I'm thinking about, it, I think I was wrong because it was. Um, uh, how come I'm not? Um, I'm not thinking of the uh, the name. I can picture the album cover. Well, there's "Get Your Wings" in '74. That that was it. Yeah, it was Aerosmith, "Get Your Wings," and then "Toys in the Attic," I believe. Okay, let me look at the discography because they're not showing me. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah, you're right. Aerosmith was the first album in 73, Get Your Wings in 74, Toys in the Attic in 75. So they're churning out an album like every year Yeah, in between touring uh, and all that. I don't know how long they were together before they put out Aerosmith. I mean, that might have been an album that was developing for years. I don't know. But to be putting out an album every year, to be a couple years in, now you're really under the pressure of the record companies. There are certain levels of expectations. You've been out on the road. You know what that's like. You want to go back out there. So there had to be a good amount of pressure making this album. And to be able to I come up so. with an album that, you know, nine songs, you got nine songs that I like and really can't complain about. I think yeah. they produced something pretty amazing here. Because I think like, um, I mean, I know that the first album, um, I, I like I said, I can't remember. It's been a few years since I read any of the Aerosmith stuff. But I mean, I know that they were, you know, they had those songs and they were working on them for a little bit. I mean, maybe for that first year they were together, maybe less. But I mean, I love that album. I mean, by all accounts I heard, it wasn't, you know, it was done quick. It wasn't produced that great, blah, blah, blah. You know, everything that yeah. you hear about a first album, eh, it wasn't that great. I thought it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Get Your Wings, I always thought was great because um, I think I mistakenly said that this was the first album that he sang with his real voice. It was actually Get Your Wings and then this one. So okay. by then he'd already transitioned to singing normally. But I remember mm-hmm. hearing Get Your Wings and thinking like, wow, what a great, follow-up um but it was still kind of that in between like i don't think it hit the you know the the kind of the level that this one did because by this time you know on their third album yeah maybe there was a little bit of pressure um to to turn out more songs but i think they were still in the that really early phase where they were really you know um they they were creative maybe they had a little you know, well, they definitely had more money behind them than on the first album, sure, maybe even yeah. the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they had Jack Douglas producing um, um, again. Um, so I, I think that they, you know, they were really able to like, you know, hone as much as they could, you know, their their songs and everything to a level where this is, you know, one of their best albums, even though most people argue the that, you know, um, you know, Rocks was the, the pinnacle of um you know, their songwriting and everything, you know, and I, I agree it's a great album, but it never hit me as much as the first few. 
Um, although I, I, you know, I can't like the first six Kiss albums. I can't argue with any of the, you know, seventies Aerosmith albums either. Any mm-hmm. of them being like, you know, less than great. Yeah, I, I don't know those albums, so I can't really comment on that. But I can say he does. Stephen does feel very comfortable with his voice at this point. I don't feel yeah. like. And, and again, when you're recording in the studio, but they they didn't they still didn't have huge budgets. Now they're paying for the orchestra players to come in and fill in on some of these songs. So that takes a good chunk out of the budget right there. Um, And so you've got to think that their time was maybe somewhat limited in recording. And that being the case, I don't I don't feel like he had to record a bunch of times. I mean, everything that I'm hearing just sounds very comfortable and natural. And he just feels very at home as a singer to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I I think that these guys were like, um, uh, you know, just a great combination of uh musicians like from the get-go like have you heard um um i don't know if it's a, a box set or whatever but they they just recently released a, a a thing of rarities like from the like demos and stuff from the early days oh um there was um oh god what was it uh, now i gotta look it up <laughs> um they they recently did re um release something um which um um let me see see if i can find it because it's the latest thing that they that they put out 1971 the road starts here (laughs) h-e-a-r again ever the um, the wordsmith if that was steven yeah so it's uh so it's an eight song um thing you know and it's basically like demos uh the um which it looks like a looks like a like everything is from the first album but it looks like it's all like demos and first takes and stuff because there's all stuff from the first album including like um reefer headed woman which wasn't on there and um major barbara which i know is another early song that they they did but it was like um when you hear that outside of like the the album recordings if you're familiar with the first album at all it's like it's it's even more raw and Mm -hmm. steven tyler is singing with his natural voice so you can hear like um, like somebody and walking the dog and and moving out and stuff like that with with them just kind of like jamming mm-hmm. and it's almost like and and for me when I hear demos and stuff like that I'm always like I always prefer demos over like the studio versions I always think they're the coolest mm-hmm. yeah and so I'm just like yeah I'd listen to this any day but that's a picture right there of like what a just a raw like you know just bluesy great like gritty rock band. Uh, they were like in the beginning Mm -hmm. so i mean they had that chemistry and they had that talent even though um you know they were you know regarded as like you know sloppy quote unquote sloppy or like you know not really trained or whatever but i mean isn't that what like you know some of the best rock music is oh absolutely i I think i think when rock becomes too polished it's it just Rock should have a little bit of rawness to it, a little bit of, you know, not everything being perfect all the time. I mean, rock should be a little bit wild, I think. And I think that's what the turnoff to a lot of people is for ballads, is that ballads typically are everything is perfectly aligned, perfect performances. Nothing can really be out of sync because a ballad has to be done a certain way. Whereas other songs like, okay, take uh, Space Trucking by Deep Purple. You know, the, the intro to Space Trucking is not perfectly on sync. You know, Roger, nope. Roger and Ian are off uh, from each other at one point. I think John comes in late on one of those hits. And and I, that's what rock and roll is to me. It should not be polished and perfect. It should not be quantized to the 64th note. 
it should be honest and raw and the way it was the way it was played. Um, that's, I think, one of the things I do love about hearing those demos and, and in-process cuts of songs, because you get to hear it raw. You get to hear it not being perfect. You guys on your, yeah. on your Child in Time episode that you just did uh, played of the, the, what, the first time or one of the first times that it was ever performed live, and that was before the album came out. So it was a very unpolished version. There were different parts mm-hmm. in it. I loved that. It was like hearing it for the first time, but also getting an understanding of their developmental process because you could yeah. hear it started out or at one point it was like this and now we know it morphed into that. And to see that, you know, we don't see all the steps of that progression, but to see it came from this to that. I love that. That was one of my favorite parts of the episode. I And yeah. there's a, a cut. I don't know if, if you have it. Uh, there's a cut of Fools from Fireball that was when uh, Ian was working on the lyrics and it's just, they're kind of just jamming it on it. And yeah, that is one of my favorite cuts I've ever heard from purple because it's just so raw and honest and you get to see the development. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know many rock fans like us that don't love stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, like, like hearing the, the, the process as you called it, um, uh, uh, the, you know, kind of like, wow, I can't believe this is how it was like before, you know, it became what we know now. Right. Um, the first, the first thing that I ever heard of that was, um, there was a black Sabbath, uh, bootleg that I had gotten from, I can't remember where it was from. I mean, it's probably pretty famous. Um, I, but it was a really early show that they did in like, you know, maybe it was like 1969, 1970, and, um, you know, you could tell it was really early. They had like no stage set or anything, but they were doing an early version of uh, War Pigs and the lyrics that Ozzy was singing were different oh. than the ones that wound up on the album. And I was just like, I remember being like, the hell is this? <laughs> and I mean, the, the music and everything was the same, but it was just like, you know, some of the verse lyrics were different. And it was just like, that was my first window into just like, like hearing some of these songs, either a live version or like, you know, a demo or something like that, where something was different. I was like, I just remember thinking, wow, this is so cool. I own this, this concert that has like this different version of war pigs on it. Right. That I'd yeah. never heard before, you know? And it's like, um, so yeah, those, those types of things are just like, I feel like they're, they're just like a gem to us because we, we love these songs and these bands so much. And it's just like, we, we want to get closer to them. And like, you know, I think being, you know, having a window into that creative process, like kind of gets us there, you know? Well, plus it, we love the song so much that to have something new to listen to instead of yeah. just, well, this is the one studio version of Rat Bat Blue and they never played it live. So this is all we're going to get. <laughs> uh, right. we, we like having some new way to experience the song. But I think, and I have to wonder where the balance is on this. I think part of me loves those as a fan but part of me also loves those as a musician because I can learn from that and in my own yeah. songwriting, see how they develop things and then see how I do. So I think it, there's there's some split in there as to where why I love it sure, so much. Yeah. But I think it's it's part each of those two things. Um, but I, I'm afraid that that's becoming a lost art now because it seems yeah. like a lot of bands are not demoing new material live because it's just going to end up on YouTube and it's they don't want it to get out there before the album is released. So I feel like that that kind of stuff happens less and less until you get the, okay, you've bought the album, now we're going to do the deluxe edition where you get a couple of extra studio cuts or instrumental versions like Purple just released 
uh, one of their, um, uh, what was it? The, uh, now what I think, uh, the new now what, which has a, a couple of things that they released on single CDs and that. And I'm like, that's where we're going to hear this stuff. It's not going to be like, we're not going to be at some concert. Like I heard uh well-dressed guitar before Rapture of the Deep came out and I could not mm-hmm. wait until the album came out. And then it wasn't on the album, which oh. really pissed me off. It didn't come out <laughs> until the next version. But I feel like we're losing those things because of things like YouTube. Yeah. They don't want it getting out before the album release. So we don't get as many of those things now as the stuff that they've unburied from archives from bands where record companies are like, what else can we exploit to get some more money? Yeah, but, you know, I mean, I guess the good thing is, is that these things do exist out there mm-hmm. and there is plenty of old bands and uh, older music and older bands and like stuff that's uncovered like even the aerosmith thing that i just uh you know told you about now is is like what is it like 50 years old and it just came to light and i mean i'm sure there's more where that came from i think on their isn't it on their official youtube channel like they started like showing like uh just like rare concerts from over the years like every week too oh that could be that's that's a great idea though yeah, yeah, which I mean, you know what? I think I saw it on um, on Facebook, and I rarely comment because I'm not part of the whole one upping or arguing on the internet thing. But it was just like um, I think I had like said, um, yeah, I said Kiss could really take a lesson from you guys on this stuff because it's like you know they, it's well known that they are like there's a lot of stuff out there, mm-hmm. or they've been sitting on a lot of stuff or whatever you believe uh, the from you know, the past 50 years and it's just uh, almost, and it's just like, just, just release it already. Like, you know, like put it, put it on your official page or like, you know, put it on like a pay-per-view type of like, you know, put it on an app where somebody can buy into it and we could stream all this, this great content. I know that like um, Metallica does, um, has done stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure some other bands have as well, you know, and it's just like, you know, not only is there money to be made, but there's great footage out there that we're all dying to see and listen to. And um, I think, I think honestly, the problem most likely is over the rights, who the publishers were, who who's willing to do what, Hey, if we wait two more Mm -hmm. years, we can do this instead, or let's wait till the anniversary of this or that. There's so much of that that goes on behind the scenes. Whereas Metallica, I'm pretty sure they own all of their mm-hmm. stuff or maybe not like the first couple albums, but I think every, everything since master of puppets, I would imagine they started doing under, under their own control. And I mean, yeah, I get that too. Um, I mean, uh, I, I know that like, you know, the guys from the band aren't sitting there going, nah, we're not going to release it because it's probably not under their control. It's going to yeah. be some, somebody that owns the rights or like, you know, the, the person of a person of another person and you got to get their permission. And it's just like, where's the money and like that person releasing like you know the some obscure thing that only diehard fans are going to be into where's their money where like where's their motivation behind packaging and putting that out mm-hmm. i get that part to it but as a fan it can be frustrating because oh, absolutely. it's like and, and the band give might, it to us already and the band might not even know about half of those projects until they get a paycheck and what the hell is this album i don't remember this and they're like oh right. okay well i guess they released that it's a weird business. And I think that at least, though, the one benefit is that since we live in the digital age, if they wanted to do digital only for those and really keep the cost down, but still get something to those diehard fans so that they know there's only going to be X percentage of sales. So we're really looking at a smaller market and we don't want to put the cost into manufacturing physical CDs, shipping those out or doing vinyl. They could just mm-hmm. do those as digital only downloads 
um, you know, something to to be able to get it to those fans. But it's, you know, it, and even uh, there's a WKRP podcast on the, on the show WKRP in Cincinnati. And mm-hmm. there's so many things that as they re-list, reissued those shows for DVD, there were so many songs that they were not able to re-secure rights to, so they had to substitute them. That's why it took so long to come out, was mm. all over music rights. And some of it makes sense, and some of it makes no sense. Some of them are cover versions of songs instead of the originals, because they can get rights to that and not the original. It The whole yeah. business is just a mess when it comes to things like that. Personally, I don't see why anyone would care. Why wouldn't you want it out there? Unless it's something where, like, you're showing a side of the band that's, like, too early developmental for us. We don't want to show that that's too early for us as a band to want people to know about. Um, I guess that was part of Richie's problems with Roger's 25, uh, 25th anniversary remasters was he didn't like that stuff being shown. So, yeah, it was, it, um, yeah, I was going to say there was, um, there was a, um, I was just going to say, I was going to use a Richie example mm-hmm. <laughs> as well was, um, I want to say back in March, um, I went to see, um, a preview of the Dio documentary. Right. Yeah. And, um, I think that we talked about mm-hmm. it. Um, I'm pretty sure that I told you when I went there, uh, Wendy Dio was there and uh, she was, you know, doing a Q&A. And one of the things that they talked about was um, and I can't remember what the specific song was, but there was some rainbow song or something in there that they were just like, why? Why wasn't that included? Mm-hmm. You know, like it was and, you know, I can't remember right now, but I remember just saying, you know, Richie wouldn't wouldn't, you know, release the rights to it or Richie wouldn't agree to have us use it. And, you know, and, you know, and somebody was like, why <laughs> you know, yeah. at this point? It's like, why even, you know, it's just like, it's just going to, it's just going to drive more business to like your work and your albums and everything. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you say no? Yeah. I mean, if, um, if you're using it, if you're allowing it, you're going to charge a license for it and you're going to get, you know, some right. money for it, but you're getting nothing for it now. So yeah. unless it's archives where Ronnie comes out and go, you know what? Richie Blackmore is an asshole and I would never recommend working with him. Uh, why would you, and I don't think Richie would even care if that was on there. Uh, why would you, yeah. What's, what's the problem? What, give me, give me a reasonable answer as to why you don't want this to happen. And I might be able to go, okay, at least I can understand, but I can't imagine what that would be at this point. Everybody's heard the music. Everybody knows the songs. If there's some, you know, rare concert footage or whatever, why wouldn't you? I mean, there's, there's just only gain in it for you. if, If, even if it's like a few bucks in your pocket. Right. But I mean, um, you know, I, I can't pretend to know what the business is like. So I'm just talking from the perspective of, you know, a music fan that would want to see this stuff. But, you know, I yeah. am I am sure that there is a, like like we were just saying a lot of stuff involved that we don't know or understand. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm grateful for the stuff that is out. Yeah, and, and a sad amount that's probably been lost to time is reels that were recorded over because they were, yeah. you know, hey, save this. It was just practice stuff or whatever. I mean, I can't even imagine yeah. the amount of things that have been lost due to, all right, well, that wasn't your final reel. You didn't pay for it. So we're going to record this next thing right over the top of it. And they would do that all the time. You know, they they blank out the tape and just, all right, next band. Yeah. You know, because that stuff wasn't cheap back then. So uh, it's a shame. But man, what a great album. Thank you so much, John, for for coming on and talking with me about this one. I think I'm really glad to see that it's such an important album to you as well, that you kind of hit Mm -hmm. it at the same time in your musical journey that I hit it in mine, uh, which is really cool. And I'm glad you liked You See Me Crying. If there was one one song on the album, I thought this is the one he's not going to like. 
I actually thought it might be that one. Yeah, no, you you weren't off the mark, but um, you know that that particular one, um, I have I do have a soft spot for because, like I said, it was it was my first introduction to the aside from Dream On, mm-hmm. the early Aerosmith ballad, and really being like, wow, these guys like still like they already had it back then, but it wasn't as I guess it wasn't as commercial because at that yeah. point, really, who, who was listening? Right. You and know, they, yeah, and they, like, and they did release it as a single, which I found, uh, you know, kind of inspiring, actually, because they had, so, I mean, almost any song on this album could have been released as a single and stood a good chance mm-hmm. of success. So I kind of like that they did that because it is more of an obscure ballad than just your your standard type of here's the kind of ballad that would end up on MTV. You know, it doesn't have quite that format to it, especially with the orchestral side of it. Uh, it was a little past its time as far as that goes, but I think it's a fantastic song. So uh, thanks so mm-hmm. much, guys. Check out John. I say this every time he comes on, and I mean it. Check out John on the Deep Purple podcast. Coming up on 200 episodes before you know it. Unbelievable. Never missed a single week, no matter what's gone on, the craziness, COVID, all of it. They've hung in there and done one every week. So congratulations on that. Thank you for putting out such a great show. And thanks for uh, returning as many times as you have on this one. I look forward to your next visit. Yeah, me too. It's always uh, it's always a pleasure and so much fun to come on. I love talking uh, music and these classic uh, albums and uh, bands with you. Thank you so much. I do too. We, we got some more ahead of us. The funny thing is we haven't yeah. taped the one that's already been heard by the audience that's listening now. <laughs> So I, I can't wait to hear how that went that they already know. Yeah, it, it was awesome. It was, just, it was a great time. It was awesome. We saved the world multiple times over. <laughs> it was just amazing. So yeah, we'll have fun with that. Guys, take care. Listen to the Deep Purple podcast. Links are in the show notes. And we'll be back next week with some other episode. We'll see you guys later. Take care. Cheers.